Oh, good morning to you all. Uh, we're back in the book of Revelation today, chapter 11, and we'll be looking at verses 15 to 19. So please can you turn there now. Well, a little over a week ago, I was paddling down the Wanganui River in my kayak on a three-day trip with my friends from Auckland. And yes, behind the wetsuit and the buff and the glasses and the hat and the everything, that's me. We launched at a place called Wakahoro and we finished at Papariki, which is a distance of about 80 kilometres. And I can testify that my shoulders still remember. And although that might sound like an impressive distance for human-powered transport, I will openly confess that the flow of the river has more credit for any movement than my arms do. It's my second such journey, and although the word awesome has become somewhat trivialised by overuse today, I will say this really was an awesome experience. In fact, we've already started preparations to go again in November. So plans are afoot, expectations are high. Watch this space. Perhaps, though, I should be more careful in my forward thinking. Why? Well, as we shall see from this text, the time is definitely coming when all that planning and preparation stuff that we habitually do, all of the holidays and the meetings and the trips and schemes will become meaningless because God will show who is really in charge of the timetable. From that moment on, tomorrow will be lived on his terms, not ours, and he will execute his plan through his power and nothing at all in creation has the slightest chance of changing that. So, let's read then. Revelation 11, verses 15 to 19. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God in their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. What we've just read here is the climactic moment of a process that started back in chapter 8 with that first angelic blast of a trumpet. And these must not be misunderstood as a musical interlude to create some space for popcorn. Because each trumpet is the herald of some kind of real judgment on the earth. And they do not have the nature of notes being remotely taken by the Lord to be stored up for a good telling off at a later date. These are real and terrible judgments with immediate and physical consequences for all of mankind. And while I don't want to speculate for the sake of sensation to say that the fifth trumpet will sound at 08.15 on the 5th of September because that is not supported by scripture and therefore fruitless, we must take on board that these things are real and will happen and may take, may take place in our own lifetimes. 
perhaps even before the end of the sermon, if the Lord will so. And since we cannot escape that knowledge now, we must immediately ask ourselves the question, how will our lives be different from this very moment? Well, to help our thinking, we can take a more careful look at this passage. The first thing to note is that although this is the last trumpet in the series, it isn't what is commonly known as the last trump that Jesus refers to in Matthew 24:31. He says, And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. The principal evidence for this is one of timing, because earlier in the same passage in Matthew, uh, in verse 30, there is a reference to a thing called the sign of the Son of Man. Time-wise, then, we understand first that sign and then afterwards the trumpet. And if we look at that here in Revelation, that sign of the Son of Man is only described much later in Revelation 19. And so today's trumpet and the final trump cannot be one and the same. There's still a lot of things to happen before God's work is finally done. But I don't, I don't want us to believe that there's an opportunity then to be fooling around until things get really serious and we can jump onto that heavenly bus at the last moment. Remember that God and heaven exist outside of time. It's meaningless for them. And so although we've got all this stuff laid out in order here by John for us to read and and they appear to take some considerable time, the reality is that they will probably happen very, very quickly from our perspective. So there is no time to be wasted. We must live our lives as ones properly prepared and anticipating the imminent return of Christ. So we should make this personal. How does this particular trumpet help me to be ready for that moment? Well, to answer that question, let me ask you another. Your starter for 10 points. How many countries are there in the world today? Any takers? How many? 210? It's close. You're warm. The official answer is 195. And it does get, start to get a little bit complicated if you include things like dependencies and associates, but 195 the number, is the number. But is that God's perspective? We read here, immediately following the trumpet blast, there's, there's this pronouncement that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So what we see on first reading is a radical and wonderful change in global ownership. Those 195 countries have had a complete change in government. There's no more republics, no allegiances to a king or queen, no commonwealth, no union of states. For all of humanity will come under the majesty and authority of one sovereign Lord and God. Forever. Well, that's pretty amazing, isn't it? Something to look forward to. Yes? But here's the thing. See, that 195 number is wrong because we aren't looking at things correctly with spiritual eyes. Because then we'd see that something a lot more important is happening here. Although the New King James Version that I use habitually refers here to the kingdoms, plural, many commentators suggest that the singular kingdom is more appropriate. But even so, it still looks like this verse reads as though many are becoming one. 
However, in the spiritual sense, the many are already one, but not in a good way. In John 12, 14 and 16, Jesus makes reference to that one. I'll just read one of those. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. The truth is that the world already has one ruler and his name is Satan. Therefore, what we're reading about here is actually the very greatest of victories, an end to his cruel and oppressive domination of creation. This is the moment when the Lord answers our prayer. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. O Lord, we pray, bring us that day soon, for we long for your kingdom. Let's look now at the response to that uh, of the 24 elders. I'll read that again, starting in verse 17. We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Well, the first thing we see is that there's an absolutely extraordinary difference in the response to these trumpet judgments by believers, as as represented by the elders here, and unbelievers who we read as the nations. You see, the elders fall quite rightly on their faces and they worship and they thank God. They utterly set their pride aside because they know that God is the one and only, the eternal one. They know that that he has saved them. They know what he has saved them from and they know the hope and reward that he has delivered them to. So what else can they do but wholeheartedly give the Lord his due glory? On the other hand, What is the attitude of the nations? It says here that they are angry. What are they thinking? I mean, they've just seen the might of God demonstrated, but still they stand and wave their fist at him, the ant biting the feet of the elephant. And of course, that looks perfectly ridiculous to us now. But perhaps we do need to ask ourselves where we sit during the week. When we're away from here, are we on our faces as we ought to be like these elders? Sorry, are we on our faces as we ought to be like these elders? Or are we on our feet, defiant sometimes? Or perhaps somewhere in between? Maybe we need to think about that. Secondly, as inhabitants of these shaky isles, we Kiwis know something about so-called natural disasters. We are not strangers to floods and earthquakes and volcanic eruptions because they happen literally on our doorstep. And so we aren't blind to their power and how insignificant humanity's greatest efforts are in the face of them. As believers, we know that these things are not just a random force or bad luck or karma or mother nature is is commonly held. No, they are a testimony to the power of God. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about the might behind the great weather and geological events that I've personally seen and experienced, and then I read here that God is still to take up his full power, I'm shaken. 
how can any more than this be possible? But here it is. God has set aside the full manifestation of his might until the appropriate time. So what does he do with it? Let me explain. Although I've just drawn you a picture of physical might, which shouldn't be set aside, by the way, because it's going to be very amply demonstrated in the chapters to come, what we're reading about here relates more to the expression of God's character than his muscles. Let's look at verse 18 again. The nations were angry and your wrath has come in the time of the dead that they should be judged and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. So if we look at this we can see that there are three consequences mentioned here as a result of God taking up his power. And they are wrath, judgment and reward. And they are all connected to his character in some way. Now we would usually understand wrath as just being another word for angry, which is kind of correct, but it does carry with it the idea of doing something with that anger. It's not a passive description, it's it's, it's an active one, which is rather appropriate, as we will see. It's also a theological doctrine, which as an attribute of God explains that he intensely hates all sin. And it must be said that obviously that intensity is hard for us to understand because we're quite good at sliding around our own and others' sin. We make up lots of good reasons to excuse it. We cover our eyes and look away for fear of ridicule or offence, or perhaps we pretend that it didn't happen at all. But that's not God at all, because sin invariably, invariably makes him angry and wrathful. And like I said, wrath is an active sort of anger, and so sin always requires God's just punishment. Maybe we ought to be taking sin a lot more seriously. Now that word just is very important because for justice to be done there must be a standard of rightness for comparison. We have to ask if something is going to be right or wrong. Well, why is it so and who determines that? As humans we like to think that we do have a just system in our legal processes but the reality is that despite the very best efforts of our lawmakers it isn't really so. Because justice is denied by lies, by money and by error, just to start with. And moreover, justice almost always depends at some point on the testimony of a human witness. And unfortunately, none of those was ever equipped with a red light on their forehead to indicate when they are lying. So, who is really just? Only God. And we call this his righteousness, which means that he always acts in accordance with what is right and that he himself is the final standard of what is right. He determines what is just and what is not. So God must righteously execute his wrath against each and every sin ever done by each and every sinner. Well, that's okay. Because that's the person sitting next to you, isn't it? Or maybe it's that well-known swine sitting in the pew over there. No, friends. Of course, that's me and you, because we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. 
we should all be recipients of God's wrath. And although from our present perspective he hasn't done so with finality, yet, rest assured, he will. That's what this passage is about. And so we'll continue to see what it says to us. So far we've already spoken about two of the key themes of this passage, wrath and judgment, but there are two more words in verse 18 that I want to talk about because they have deeply personal meaning for us and are the direct consequences of wrath and judgment. And they are reward and destruction. When that seventh trumpet blows, the time for covering your eyes and making excuses is over forever. And I mean forever. God will certainly righteously judge all of humanity who has ever lived and then reward or destroy us as we properly deserve. And to me that's potentially a very frightening prospect since how will we know for sure which one we deserve? Well I'm happy to say there's a crystal clear answer to that question. If I ask you as a first step, have you repented of your sins? And that means that you've apologised to God for them and resolved to try not to do them ever again. And then as the next and most important step, have you said to God that you accept his son Jesus as your Lord and Saviour? That means that you agree that he will be the boss of your life from now on and that you will use his standards to live your life and that you will do the work that he gives you to do. If you can say yes to all of these things, if you have done those, then you will surely stand on the reward side of the judgment scales. Well, that's fantastic news, Dave. But what will that reward be? Unfortunately, the true picture of this reward has become completely mangled by modern society. The most usual understanding is that We're going to see a bright light and then we're going to go somewhere, we're going to meet St. Peter at some kind of fancy gate and he'll decide whether we're a good sort or not when we get there. And of course we're a good sort because we donated to save the children and we helped old ladies across the road. And then when we get in there we sort of get to chill out forever with wings and a harp and a cloud. What? Where did all this rubbish come from? What scripture tells us is that pretty much none of that is true. The only thing that's true is the forever part. God himself will judge us, not St. Peter, as we read here. And we ought to be clear that although doing good is absolutely the right thing to do always, on its own it will never ever get us into heaven. Only as as I have said, accepting Jesus will do that because only he was able to take the punishment that should have been ours by dying on that cross. And that wings and harp stuff is all junk too. God is going to destroy the whole earth. Finished. Gone. Everything. He's going to make a new and perfect one and that is where we will live. And we will live there in completely new and perfect bodies that don't wear out and get sick like these ones. Those are all very marvellous and certainly worth working towards, but really... Really, there's something far greater. And that is that we will actually get to see God face to face. On first thought, that might not seem like a very big deal because, you know, we meet people every day. 
we see them face to face. So why am I making so much of it? What's like this? You see, God created us for a specific and very intimate relationship with him that was messed up and broken by Adam and Eve's sin in the Garden of Eden. And since then, every person who has ever lived, if they're honest, will say that they have noticed that missing part and, and they've tried desperately in some way to fill it. That might be by working outstandingly hard or collecting some kind of experiences, the good old bucket list, or having lots of partners or any number of sensual things. Yet we all know that deep down, none of those quite do the job. There's always that sense that we're not complete, that there's a part of the jigsaw that's missing. But when we receive our heavenly reward, when we meet our Father and Creator, we will finally be made whole, really, truly whole. Because that intimate relationship with God will be restored. We will know total satisfaction and joy for the first time ever and forever. And given the extreme efforts that we go to in our lives in search of that very state, I'd say that we'd have to recognise that as the most worthy prize possible. And friends, it's completely free. You can't pay for it in any shape or form. Only repentance and acceptance of Jesus as Lord is necessary. So, the reward is very exciting, isn't it? Yeah? But what about the destruction option? I mean, Dave, I quite like the idea of being destroyed and dying and then there's nothing. And the upside is I get to live my life doing whatever I like. Sounds like a a win-win to me. I'm very sorry, but that's not how it works at all. Inasmuch as the reward is very exciting, the destruction is very awful. In the book of Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks very plainly about what awaits those who do not repent and follow him. He says these three things. Cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. And what happens there? Weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not a nice place. And then a little later, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. And then, these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteousness, righteous into eternal life. So, From these verses and quite a lot of others that refer to this, we understand that the destruction that's spoken of here isn't just a blotting out, but something to be much more sincerely feared because they speak of an eternal and conscious punishment for those who have not accepted Jesus as Lord. Think of that. This is the point where we begin to understand the full meaning of God's wrath and judgment and destruction. I hope it makes you think. I hope it makes you think that this must be the moment where you decide to take up God's free offer of salvation. To live on his terms, not your own. I urge you not to delay because if you've seen, as we've seen in this text, God will certainly and very, very unexpectedly 
draw all things to a close. For good. And then there is no chance to change your mind. There will be a new beginning for sure. And it will be on his terms. So, will you view it from his side or from another and much more hopeless and awful perspective? I don't know. I can only hope and pray that you make the right choice today. So, I always find myself with a conundrum in this space because it feels like I ought to finish the sermon there, but we still have to look at verse 19 because there's something really great there too. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake and great hail. Have you noticed how differently American and English movies treat background music? You know, it's a very rare moment when there's not some kind of grand accompaniment to an American film. But English directors are a lot more subtle. They seem to understand the space that background silence gives for an actor to make their performance truly great. It's too easy to see this verse here like an American movie. It's a busy scene, awesome computer-generated special effects, something climactic occurs, ta-da! Cue giant lightning, thunder and hail. Wow! And wow! Underscore, underscore, capital letters. But in this sound and fury, we completely miss the point of why all this stuff is happening. Now, I want to be clear here. What God is in his person and what he will do here when all this takes place truly, truly deserves the loudest thunder, the brightest lightning and the biggest hail. Because the Lord is worthy of all honour and glory and praise. But let's not miss this little bit about the ark in here because it's a reminder, a fulfilment of a promise made long ago. In Old Testament times, the Ark of the Covenant only allowed one trembling man once a year to make atonement, to pay for the sins of God's people by sprinkling the blood of a sacrificed animal on its mercy seat. It was otherwise singularly excluded from human contact. In fact, even to see it meant certain death. So although mercy was granted, it was only on very particular and specific terms. Everything had to be just so, because sin reigned in the world. But here in the scene in Revelation, as God promised Israel back then, sin has been dealt with once and for all. And so there is no need for the ark to be hidden anymore, because God's mercy has come to all who will receive it, and all who have done so can and will come face to face with him. What God intended in the beginning, that we, like Adam and Eve, should be able to walk and talk with him in the cool of the evening, has been restored. And nothing, nothing will ever change that again. Hallelujah! At the very beginning of this book of Revelation, the reader is promised a blessing from reading, hearing, and doing the things that they find here. I believe that we have certainly been blessed by the certainty that we have heard and read about in this passage. But what are we doing about 
the doing part. Let's be sure to work on the doing part because the time truly is near. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this book of Revelation. Although it seems so weird and scary when we first read it, when we start to peer into it, when we start to understand it, we gain such a great understanding of what hope awaits us and what a great and marvellous and mighty God you are. Lord, I pray that that image would not be the end of it, but that we would be motivated by what we see in and hear and read, Lord, to, to go out and do your work, to be your servants, to gain that great reward, and that we would look forward to meeting you face to face on that marvellous day. Come, Jesus, we pray. Amen.